Hi, and welcome to The Deep End, Conversations in the Global Talent Pool. I'm Jeff Dubisky, Workforce Logic's Chief Solutions Officer, and today we're going to be talking about at the risk of failure, bold decisions and political maneuvers that will either accelerate or hamper transformation, even with the best internal business case. And joining me today to talk about that in part one of a two-part series is Kevin Sturge, former Global Director, Senior Director at uh, Cisco for Contingent Workforce Strategies. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff, and great talking to you again. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful to have you on with us uh, for, for the audience just to know. Uh, Kevin and I go back a number of years. It's really been a, a fun time to be working with you, with collaborating with you, and, and such deep expertise that you do have. I mean, obviously at Cisco, a well-known organization, we are talking about the Cisco with a C, um, the, the technology company. Yeah. And of course, what a massive, massive amount of not only employees, but extended workforce yeah. and yeah. spend in those categories. And so today and, and in our part two series as well, we're going to talk a little bit about how do you build a really good business case around workforce transformation, specifically in contingent and SOW labor, um, and also some of those key political uh, issues and hurdles that come up and around uh, that actual implementation of a strong business case. So Kevin, when we think about just where to start, uh, framing a necessity for change or what's sort of the call to action, what are some of the things that, that led you and, and the team to really think about uh, the extended workforce differently? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I, I, I think there's, there's always a couple of tipping points that you can use. Uh, you, you can use external events. We were able to use COVID uh, to some of the changes we want to drive, but also to, to help Get, just get better results from the money that we're spending. And, and I think that's when you and I were engaged in the project, right? With, well, you know, how can we do this better? How can we get better outcomes and better results, right? So, you know, and you can do that a number of ways, right? You look at the data and the data will tell us whether we're overpaying or even the outcomes. Are we getting what we purchased as well? So I think you can use any of those three levers to get into the project. Yeah, and, and I love how you broke that apart. It seems like there's a, a narrative developing for a lot of people as of late that instead of just looking at headcount and hours mm -hmm. through some lens of productivity, that we really are trying to drive towards an outcome. Right. That uh, there tends to be behaviors that I saw years ago where uh, upon annual renew of budgets or annual renew of tenure yeah. limitations, yeah. people always requisitioned a head for 40 hours a week, for 52 yeah. weeks a year. And it was just sort of this, this behavior and habit and yet measuring towards an outcome. What are some of the things when you think about that, that uh, it seems like inextricably there's heads and hours that drive to an outcome. And yet how do we sort of uncouple that to decide on what are we measuring? And what are some of those things that drive towards a solid business case? Um, you mean on whether we should go down an hourly engagement or an SOW engagement? Sure. That, that's a great place of looking, sure. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if I look at, you know, whether we're looking at somebody, you know, to fill a role that's managed by an individual, that's timesheet based, really, it's either a true staff augmentation role, either you're covering for somebody or there's some peak in workload, and it really should be for a short period. Now, the short period 
it can mean different things for different business units, but at different uh, companies, right? Uh, in in Cisco's term, that will be a maximum of two years, the, the tenure limit. So it should, in my opinion, be that burst out work or that specialist work, right? And, and sometimes it should be very, very quick, right? There was an example that I paid an awful lot of money for one individual for one week to do a job, but I actually felt that the job that was worth it, we got value from it, and it was done within a week, which was which, which is also great. It was done very, very quickly, right? So I, I think you have to like have an assessment of whether you should be using a, a contingent worker uh, staff augmentation role. On the managed service side of it, I think you really have to look at it as can we measure what that individual or that team is doing to see whether we can hold the supplier slash individuals accountable. Um, and the example that I often used was, you know, if I hire a company to paint my house, they, they don't show up and say, okay, to paint your house, it's going to cost you $5,000. And then I say, but you've got to employ Jeff and Kevin, or I want to interview everybody that comes into it. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, why do we do that when we're looking at you know internal technology spend or contingent workforce spend, right? I need my house painted, but I want to make sure I'm choosing the painters, right? And, and I'm not skilled in selecting painters. I know a good job or a bad job. So sure. I think Jeff, you have to look at how do you manage, can you manage, can you measure, and how do you hold the supplier accountable for that? No, that's great. And one of the things you mentioned in the first lane around whether or not it should be staff AUG, you mentioned a, um, a specific value, right? You thought you extracted value from that high dollar, one week, mm-hmm. sort of expedited uh, work. And when I think about the measurement of a firm, mm-hmm. or even an individual, right, because they all come with their credentials, yeah. Yeah. there's obviously a value proposition that some boutique firms or large global firms right. that hold in stature that have a higher price point because quite simply, they can expedite large amounts of work with credibility um, versus really that that hourly, not to minimize at all because we need lots of hourly roll up your sleeves and get that work done at the direction and control. When I think about that though, what were some of the things that were problematic for you and the team when you talk about value? Because value in the eye of the beholder, right? Is very, very different. And so sometimes just trying to drive cost out eventually to a diminishing return, right. that's when we start to really rub against what's the value proposition, value creation that we're looking for? Um, it, it's really interesting how you phrase that question because it's actually quite hard to measure that value, right? Because some of it is, you know, just because, right? Um, and, you know, I know we'll cover this a bit later, but you certainly know when you destroy value, okay? So, you know, if I'm spending... You know, tens of thousands of dollars to solve something and I pushed it far too hard and we're having junior people show up as senior people and we're just losing time you know we may lose our go-to-market advantage we may introduce something that has far too many bugs and obviously costs you more so I, I think it's very easy to measure it when you get it wrong right but but it's very hard to sort of say well you know I created x of value and, and remember, sometimes, especially you know, in my previous company, your company, some of the things we do don't go to market for six months, 12 months, two years, right? So I did something today that will add value in 12 months. That's incredibly hard to measure. 
Sure, sure. And, and and the CFO doesn't necessarily want to know that your value prop is 12, 24, 36 months out, but it is there right, for sure. Right, right. So before we get into some of the some of the baseline criteria of a business case and some of this, again, political sort of soft change management uh, on the preliminary piece, we've been straddling the fence around staff log and SOW. And there's really almost that third category of sort of outsourced events, right? So whether it's cafeteria services, um, contact centers where you are measuring on call completion, stuff that you can really get down to a finite piece. There seems to be in the marketplace for a while now, the masking of staff aug and time and materials people inside of an SOW. Yeah. Sometimes we get really good reasons for that. Uh, for example, uh, a business might not have the financial sophistication to drive uh, certain pieces to a ledger for a CapEx capture. And I get that, right? So there are ways to help do that so that you're not masking things. But others are like you mentioned, uh, maybe a two-year, 10-year limit, yeah. which interestingly enough, SIA reported most organizations in the US are at two years plus, okay. very different than a decade ago or even five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the ways in which um, you might be able to not necessarily challenge, but show people the way through the risk side of things, right? And the value side of things and why you might want to fall uh, into an SO, into a staff log category and or have the business rigor around actual named events and resources inside of an SOW. Sure. Okay, so I think you asked me six questions there, right? So I'm, <laughs> if I don't answer three and two, that's okay. Come back to it. Okay. Um, you're so polite. Um, masked SOWs, right? I would say fake SOWs. Okay. Um, and we're in the human business. Uh, and so people build up an attachment, a relationship with people that they hire. And when this tenure limit comes up, and, and that is all about protecting the brand of the corporation that you're working for, which is hugely valuable. Um, and also, again, has some costs if you end up in labor disputes. But the, the, that tenure limit comes up and then the individual, the manager that's working with that individual goes, don't worry, we'll move you to an SOW to, so that we can keep you on and do X, right? And, and you know, my job was to show them a, a couple of things. One is, you're really not mitigating the risk when you do that um, because you're still managing the individual, you're still treating them like an hourly uh, paid employee, a contractor. But the second thing is we lose control of the costs, right? So when, when I hired a, 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 a temporary worker, we had a rate card, right? That rate card was based on market values, market trends, and then hopefully we hired below that. Okay, not always, but most times we our goal right. was high uh, below that. Um, when they move into the SOW category, I don't know the mix that's in that, that that SOW, and I have to go and look, right? And these are contracts that are held in the the, the, the contract management systems, right? So we needed help there to go in and have a look at those systems, pull out the data, and then do some conversations that say we're overpaying for these resources mm -hmm. and we're not mitigating for risk, right? So sure. you're you're losing in both of the things that are important to. Uh, uh, procurement and a contingent workforce team. How, how often in, in, in your time did you find it successful to note the tenure limitations bumping up against that? Then maybe the shell game, obviously, that we just talked about. 
and trying to simply say, why don't we open up headcount? I mean, I know that's the million dollar question often is yeah. why don't we open up headcount? But what were some of the resistance factors to FTEs when you perhaps had a very significant line of, of data to show this, this types of, these types of behaviors? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really good question. I don't have a, a great answer to. Uh, I, I try and answer it in two ways. Um, one of my peers in another company, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, has this like 11 month rule. And, and when someone comes up to that limit, the procurement team go to the manager and say, hey, you've had Jeff for 11 months, um, convert or fire. It's as simple as that, right? And I was incredibly envious of that, right? Because, you know, I, I mean, at least you may, at least it's very, very clear, right? You've had an 11 month interview, right? Sure. Why not convert them at that sure. point, right? And, and where if you think about it, if someone's hitting that two year limit, right, you really should know whether you should be hiring that individual or not. And the other thing, Jeff, is guess what? A supplier has made a profit on that individual for two right. years as well. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, my previous company was very protective of the, the FTE count, right? There is still uh, metrics, you know, within um, Wall Street that is productivity per employee. Uh, and, and I wonder if that was a lot behind it, right? We're looking sure. at a productivity where contingent labor is, is uh, you know, counted somewhere else. So... Um, I, I think it was a cap um, that I, I think necessarily damages some of the value that you can bring. Sure. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I know in my years of doing this now, if I look at everybody that was an SEC traded firm and monitored by Wall Street for productivity and sales per employee and privately held, it's amazing the headcount relief that's available and right. that Wall Street, interestingly enough, doesn't look at how much indirect spend goes up when you're artificially holding your, your headcount down. Um, but, but, so we've, don't get me wrong, though, Jeff. Spend is still controlled, right? It's not like, you know, just because there's a lot of FTEs, our spend goes up or a lot. And, you know, it's still controlled. It's still managed. So there is still that discipline there, right? But, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. No, absolutely. You're right. So we've, we, we've put... Put a couple of building blocks in place when we think about how to develop some business case call to action. Mm -hmm. We've also talked a little bit about different um, areas, risk and cost, uh, talent management. So my thought is, uh, how often in early on in a business case, do you not only, let's say, enlist the help of the risk or audit team, uh, the HR team, um, the financial team, all those types of functions to either help bolster your case and be a voice, or do you find oftentimes you have to actually wrangle them individually before you even get to the business case itself? Um, again, not a, not a too clean answer, but all three of those parties, finance, HR, and legal, need to be you know, in the boat with you. Um, you know, I would say uh, my, my closeness to the legal team, we were incredibly toes close. We you know, did a lot of things in lockstep together. Uh, so there, there was a, a high element of trust and, you know, working together, moving things forward and, and decent arguments as well when we didn't agree, right? Um, HR was definitely somebody in, in 2020 that that relationship was just accelerated, right? Where where workforce planning's going, how you, you know, acquire uh, uh, contingent labor, 
versus full-time labor, definite discussions that were happening, right? And finance, finance is so critical to have on board, right? And, and they're one of the hardest to convince, right? It goes back to your point, yeah, well, how much did you really save? How much did you add value? How can I measure what risk I did lower? Because are you going to say, because we didn't get a lawsuit, I saved you X, right? Um, and listen, procurement are to blame for some of this as well, right? Because we claim the savings as the list price versus what we paid. No one pays list price, right? You know, so <laughs> we're to blame as well. But but I, I think you need them on board, you know, both individually and collectively in the boat. Um, and I think there's one other person I'd say you need to add in there as well. And that is the business stakeholder that you're trying to convince as well. The, the one that will give you the, that most voice, that, that, that leverage point. So I'd say, yes, finance definitely yes legal hr definitely in there but who is who is my lead business function manager executive that will amplify you know what we're trying to do sure and so so much of this is grassroots i think a lot of times we find that the problem statement is fundamentally the same how we choose to accentuate what that problem is the nice thing is we can put it in a procurement voice Right. A finance voice, an audit and risk voice, an HR business voice, right. which is so wonderful about this space to begin with. When I think, though, about would you prefer that almost there just becomes a handed down edict? And what does that put in place? <laughs> I know. What does that put in place in terms of the hurdles in front of you versus that grassroots effort of, of getting such collaboration across the groups right, to right. then move in? What you know, there's there's always that argument. If if we only had an edict, and I hear that a lot, I also know that there's two sides to every coin. What what are your thoughts there? <laughs> Uh, press polls, right? Press. <laughs> I, I think you need a pincer movement. Uh, I loved it when we had uh, an edict. It, it helped. It helped me get in the door. It helped me present the business case, right? It, it got me that initial conversation. But we also need it to come from the grassroots up. We need to be able to bring the individual buyers or the individual owners of those functions of those teams as well to say why we're here. You know. As I said, no one really wants to talk to procurement. Usually it's some compliance issue, but we generally there to help them uh, either, you know, save some money, do some level of re-architecture, right? Um, so, yeah, we wanted to do, do both, and it's important to move on both. Um, the phasing of it depends on the company, right? But that, that we needed to get both parties in our camp. So what, what what would you say, you know, looking back on a number of years of, of effort, where was maybe the first indication of a misstep, um, be it in a relationship building exercise, be it in a racy where someone didn't get their C or their I because they were missed? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, unintentionally, but, you know, we've, we, we always wind up in those, even the best laid plans always hit a few of those landmines. What, what are some of your thoughts there around lessons learned in that initial business case formulation? I, I, I think some of it's naivety um, from my point, you, you know, when you do the math, when you do some data crunching, um, you know, using internal data, Oh, and by the way, there's a huge power in using external benchmark data as well and, and showing up saying, look, this is what we've got. This is what the industry shows is, is very, very powerful. You know, I would think that, Jeff, if I showed up at your desk and I said to you, hey, Jeff, I can save you a million dollars and, you know, there would be very little pain. Trust me. 
do you want the million dollars? Naively, I thought everyone would say yes, right? Um, and I think that that was where I think I made uh, you know some missteps. The numbers were so big that it was like, oh, this is going to be a walk in a park. I walk over uh, to people, you know, vice president and above, and they say, come in, Kevin, you're, you're my new best friend. I think what I needed to do, what, 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 where we went differently on, uh, on that after that, Jeff, was we needed to understand what they were trying to achieve, okay? And so you, it's, it's almost like selling, right? You have to do much more listening than talking. And not only do we need to understand, you know, what they wanted to achieve, where their problems were, and where are areas they really, really do, do not want to touch. Um, and I, I'll try and give you an example of that. Um, we were looking at um, some of the call center spend, uh, which was an incredibly well-managed category. Uh, we picked a pilot country in Europe. We looked at that um, country and said, we, we believe you're overpaying uh, for these resources based on what the market's telling us, versus what, what the SOW has. And so, you know, can, can we discuss this? And what I wanted to do is I wanted to find out whether that country call center was the best that we had in the world that made it hands off, right? Because so what if you're paying 20%, but they're the absolute best call center we have globally, right? But what if it was, Jeff, the worst call center we had and we're paying 20% more? Therefore, we need to get in. And, and I think it's that second part of the conversation I wouldn't have had when I started this. It was like, you know, listen, okay, we're not going to tell you anything about that country, right? We move on to the next because there's money everywhere, right? But um, definitely that ability to learn, listen, and, and validate from it with a different angle that's non necessarily not procurement-led. It's more what is the business doing. Yeah, and I'm glad you called that out. Uh, a lot of times we hear that it's a fight around business decision rights. Mm -hmm. The enterprise and the initiative have a set of goals, sometimes counterintuitive to the business right. rights around, hey, I, it's my p and I'm held to a standard. I'm going to run this. But what I'm hearing you say, and I've, we've started to hear this more and more, is that cost is one angle. But what is my customer NPS? Right. What is my operational efficiency? Um, maybe I am paying higher, but is my turnover down so that my overtime and other people categories? So, so really unpacking that for sure. Um, when you think about then being that that now more of a a listener, that advisor almost to mm -hmm. to that business unit, was the entree typically trying to start at the the VP or that? business unit leader or was there usually an opportunity to, to look at sort of a peer and gain um, maybe the lay of the land um, or were there business reviews where could you get the information that says what's on the mind of that chief stakeholder other than cost um th that wasn't as difficult as it would sound the team was focused around business functions as well. So we had people that, you know, went to people's staff meetings, uh, you know, listened to uh, all hands and stuff like that. So there was a good awareness within the team of, of the businesses of what they're trying to achieve, where the areas of growth were. So we, we had to do that for workforce planning, right? Because so, if we were moving 
you know, let's make this up, say into optical, we needed to know where we could get optical resources from and stuff like that. So, so the team were pretty close and pretty aware of it. So we were able to do some anticipation of it, but of course the next layer down metrics that we just spoke about, that's important to understand. And that definitely is a peer level. That definitely is talking to people um, you know, within the business at whatever level, it, it didn't need to be someone with a title, but whatever level to understand, okay, that's what's important to the, the, the business owner. No, that's great. And, and so what I've heard is beyond cost, and that's a wonderful thing, is, is like an NPS score, business optimization and efficiency, value extraction, value creation. And I love how you mentioned it. it's pretty easy to, to, to measure value destruction. <laughs> and yet these are things that incrementally add. Um, so when I think a little bit about uh, also how, how do you monitor the people that might become let's say a little, have a little angst over your presence. Sure. Uh, because sometimes, like you said, external data is a great place to be. Understanding what their value and business drivers are, a great, are great things to know. But what about the people that suddenly feel like either, A, are you about to show that I'm doing a bad job, which right. again, along the continuous improvement realm, that's yeah. not the case. Or those that quite honestly are just thinking that, that are you trying to actually take my job because i think we find buckets there what what are some of the things to navigate around those uh, that's interesting I, I never came across as you're trying to take my job um interesting let, let, let me try and think about that a little bit um I, I think where we saw the angst and you know are you measuring me as not doing a good job yeah definitely experience that um and in some cases you know it's just a relationship you've got to build that you've got to show how they can add value you you've got to show how they benefit from what we're doing right but i i, I think the biggest thing is jeff and this you know goes on to certain change management techniques as well right but some things you just have to walk away from right i cannot help that business function like that sub business function uh because they are where they are so let me go and focus over here get a shining star, get, get some amplification going on, and then try and go back. Um, you know, so I, I think sometimes, you know, just because you invite them to the dance, they may not want to dance, right? So maybe invite them to the next year's one. I don't. No, that's, 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 that's a really good point. So when I think about uh, recapping where we're at, and, and obviously staging us for for part two. So um, number one, what, what what's our taxonomy, right? Why are we using labor in our extended workforce? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are we using them? So great yeah. way that you kind of framed and thought yeah. a little bit about that. Uh, number two, what are the key value drivers and that make up the foundation of the business case? Mm -hmm. uh, number three, what are the stakeholders, both cross-functional this way as well as horizontally inside the business that you're looking to do? And then what I heard you say pretty pronounced right there is and be willing to walk away, which, which um, again, when I think a little bit about um, change management, which is going to be a big focus of part two, um, do you eventually, however, bring successes forward to them? So almost have a leaderboard, let's say, that says, look at what I've been doing for other businesses, which, you know, again, comes with its own positives and negatives. We're talking yeah. about political yeah. blunders yeah. here. Yeah. You know, what, what are your thoughts there when it comes to, um, I won't say as boldly as public shaming, but definitely why everyone else is on board. How about you? 
Yeah, I mean, you hope that happens, right? And you hope that somebody is just, you know, waxing lyrical about just what a good job that this crazy team did. And, you know, I've got this out of it and that out of it. And, um, you know, then it sets up that competitive framework. And I don't know any corporations where there isn't a competitive framework. <laughs> at a level. Uh, so so, so I, I think that's one technique. But but let me, let me just share another technique that... Um, we learned very early on as well. So we, we did introduce um, quite a robust uh, preferred supplier program uh, at Cisco, and it went hand in hand with a volume purchase agreement. And, and the reason that that was done, the reason why that was designed in is that that money that they got through the VPA then went back to the business. So there was a self-encouragement to use preferred mm is non-preferred and there's all good procurement reasons legal reasons why you do want to use preferred but you know it's, it's convincing all of the thousands of buyers who could buy labor to use preferred you don't have time to call all of them but where money's going back to them at week eight of a quarter as a credit into their budgets they can use that to get themselves out of jail if they've overspent or spin up a different project right so that that became an area that got talked about, right? Oh, I just got my rebate, my rebate turned up and I did nothing, right? So, you know, there was a business function we worked with very heavily that helped us design it. And, and at the beginning, it was very much tuned for them. But all the other executives benefited from what they did because they used those suppliers, right? So, you know, there was getting that buy-in as well, that incentive buy-in, um, because the stick did not work, right? That, that, that also spoke. That's great. That's great. And so as we uh, as we wind down part one and, and tee up part two, and thank you, this has been great, especially with the, the hard uh, examples of things. Um, what would you leave people with in terms of, it sounds like right now we have some momentum. We, we've got a plan of action. We've got our baseline of cause, but what's going to trip up our momentum? What, what, right when we think we're out of the gate and ready to go, what do you think is the one or two things that suddenly blindsided you? Um, and then we can obviously use that for change discussions and lessons learned in part two. I think you're leading the witness here. It's change management, change management, and change management. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, you know, I'm very guilty of uh, the shiny object stuff. Um, there, there is some fantastic... Uh, solutions out there uh, for, for contingent workforce management. And that gives you, that can show, you know, like workforce logic, show you where the problems are, but you need a heck load of change management to help make that stuff actionable and stick and become normal business, right? You know, I would love it, you know, if, if more and more people were using like the dashboards that you produce as part of the normal course of doing business, not, not a procurement function, not a HR function, not just a, a finance function, but the businesses to see the dials of where we're going, uh, and which includes diversity and inclusion as well, right? Uh, I, I just think that will be awesome. So it's change management, change management, change management. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for part one. And uh, we appreciate, of course, that you've signed up, hopefully, to stick around for part two. <laughs> and uh, for the audience, we uh, look forward to seeing you for part two, where we'll dig in a little bit further into, as Kevin mentioned, uh, sounds like a lot of change management. And also thinking a little bit about how that business case is finely tuned. And this is a long journey. This is not a flash in the pan by any means and having sort of that intestinal fortitude to finish. So until then, Kevin, thanks again. And we'll talk to you next time.